we're working our way, as you know, through the book of Malachi, when spiritual intimacy feels elusive. And I knew, I said this morning, when I started the book, you'll, you get to these passages in the second chapter especially, very uh, searching, blunt, revelatory passages that speak into today's culture. And uh, I would dare say more comfortably than many churches care to hear right now. And I want to introduce, will be tonight and next Sunday night. After that, I think it's Christmas at Cedarview on the 18th. And we might come back to this again later on. But for at least this Sunday night and next Sunday night, the topic is marriage, divorce, and the people of God. Marriage, divorce, and the people of God. I remember clearly when, this is a few years back, Tony Campolo when he decided that it was uh, adaptable to a Christian position and the teaching of Scripture to have monogamous, faithful, loving, same-sex relationships. And I remember he did a video, and in it, he was making the comparison saying, you know, Jesus talked a lot about divorce. Churches don't talk about divorce. Jesus didn't say anything about homosexuality, and we make a big deal of it. That was his argument. And I can remember the Sunday night years ago when I came back and I said, I just, I can remember starting it off by saying, this is not very well prepared because I just saw this video this afternoon and I want to talk to you about it. And that was a big mistake, not preparing it, because if you go online and type into YouTube in the search box, Campolo Horbin, you'll find that that little talk that I gave that night has been viewed 70-some thousand times, and if I had known that, I would have prepared a lot better than I prepared. Of course, it's not true. It isn't true that Jesus didn't speak to the issue of same-sex marriage. It's not true at all, because what Jesus does, the only time Jesus talks about marriage, the only two times he talks about marriage, he goes back to Genesis and says, in the beginning, haven't you read, he created them male and female. The only marriage Jesus ever talked about is heterosexual marriage. But his argument from the other side was, well, churches never talk about divorce. Probably that's close to true. I'm going to talk about two things. Not so much tonight. We will, but we won't get right into the whole divorce thing. But I want to talk to you about marriage, divorce, and the people of God. From Malachi chapter 2, I'm only reading two verses, though I'll refer to more. Malachi 2, 11 and 12. Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this and who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Two sins will be dealt with in the next six verses of Malachi 2. The first has to do with what we'll look at tonight predominantly. The first has to do with entering marriage. 
And the second has to do with getting out of marriage. The first has to do more specifically with marrying pagan wives. And the second, which we'll look at probably next Sunday night, has to do with forsaking and divorcing a wife years after marriage. And it's hard, really hard, teaching on a text like this. It's hard addressing not just this subject, but a host of subjects like this. It's hard because both the Bible and our Lord Jesus himself, they approach the subject of human sin and failure from two perspectives. First, a standard of holiness is made clear. Teaching is laid out, commandments are given, examples, patterns are set down to be noticed and learned from, warnings are issued as to what will happen, what the consequences will be if the truth is ignored. So that's, that's the first part. There's a second part. And that is, unbelievable, creative, renewing grace is offered to those who don't deserve it, but will repent of their sin and turn to Christ. That's the second thing that's done. So sinners don't get what they deserve. Is there anybody else who would say thank you, Jesus, to that sentence? Jesus bears the penalty of our guilt. Jesus bears the penalty of my rebellion. People like I, like you, we're offered new hope. We're set back on our feet. The psalmist said it so beautifully. Psalm 103, verse 10. He has not dealt with us after our iniquities. That is not the way God deals with me. I couldn't stand for a moment if he did. So we don't get justice from God. We get pardoned. When we repent, we get mercy. We get a clean slate. Now, now, stay with me here. Holding these two sides together is the hardest thing I do in my job. Let me tell you about my job. What I just talked to you about is the single absolute hardest thing in my ministry. To talk about what God actually demands, commands, reveals on one side and still hold out unbelievable, incredible grace and mercy and pardon on the other side and and to not present either one as though it was the only side. Because there are real dangers in proclaiming one side of divine truth without the other. Let me talk to you about it for a minute. There are those who just proclaim the holiness of God. You see them all the time. This is what the Bible says. This is the unchanging standard of God. And these people say, if you just go around preaching easy grace, well, then people aren't going to care too much about obedience. They're just going to sin as much as they want and then ask for God's forgiveness later on, get off the hook, and then they can plan their next sin. 
and all the rides at Disneyland are paid for. So above all else, Pastor Don, you need to hold up the standard of holiness. It has to be protected. God doesn't compromise, and the church shouldn't compromise. And you're right. I mean, that's all you can say to that. You're right. God doesn't compromise, and the church shouldn't compromise in proclaiming divine truth, even if people don't like hearing it. But secondly, there are those who see all the broken lives, who have already run amok of God's standard of holiness, and they want so badly to reach out to all these people in grace that they actually belittle the fact of how important it is that we obey God at all in the first place. God is love. That becomes the watchword. <clears throat> we sing a lot more songs about grace and love than wrath and judgment. And that's probably as it should be. People go to that kind of extreme because maybe they've been in a church somewhere, they've seen the rod of God's holiness used in many churches just to pound a failing brother or sister into the ground without hope. So each side is trying to protect something precious. Do you get my point? Each side is trying to protect something that has to be protected because you have to protect both sides. Having said all that, that's not the hardest part. Here's the hardest part of proclaiming truth like this. There's another serious problem when dealing with these two sides of truth. The demands of holiness and obedience. The reality of grace and mercy. And here's what makes proclaiming this kind of truth so hard. It's each side of the truth is taken up and applied, usually, by the wrong audience. Let me explain. The person closer to God, the person with a tender heart to the truth, the person who perhaps feels like they've already failed God in this important area of discipleship, that kind of person tends to hear the hard warning side of divine truth in a very painful manner. How could I have failed God like that? Look what I did. In the past, they've come to a deep place of humility and desire to please God deeply and freshly. Their past failure has made them very tender, very humble before God, so they, they tend to hear the word in a more sensitive way. And so when you preach the standard of holiness and righteousness and obedience, all they feel is, oh, I failed, I failed, I failed. I'm so sorry. And the person who has a very light taste of the holiness of God, who wants to commit his or her own agenda regarding dating and marriage or divorce, who's already planning their next step outside of God's revealed will, that person will only hear grace and mercy and pardon and forgiveness. Go ahead, God's love. And so the person who maybe has already failed and feels the brokenness, the pain, of failing the Lord, they hear the command to holiness and they feel horrible. 
And the person who actually is just planning his next step of disobedience and isn't all that worried about it because, well, I get God's mercy and God's forgiveness and God's grace. It'll be fine. Don't be so legalistic. Who are you to preach? Church is full of hypocrites anyway. And we're not full. Look at all the empty seats. So I want to start. That's what make, That's the hardest part of the job. Don't go into the ministry because that's a lousy part of the job. So I want to start this teaching. Probably there'll be two. Trying very hard to make some things clear. Here's what I want to make clear. A. If you're one of those who has already experienced the pain of living with an unsafe spouse or have already gone through a divorce or a divorce and a remarriage, I would not for anything add one ounce of condemnation or pain to your present circumstances. And I want you to know that you do not hold some second-class slot in this body of believers. Not because you didn't sin, but because your past is just as much erased as mine in the blood of Jesus. And that's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. But B, if you're presently just sitting, contemplating any of these actions, marrying an unsafe partner, divorcing your presence partner, the Word of God has serious warnings that you need to hear and you need to heed. And you need to be reminded that following Jesus means obeying Jesus, not just singing some love song about His grace and mercy. I wanted to say all that before I started tonight. So... It's half my teaching time, but I think those things need to be said. Now on to our subject. Tonight, I want to talk more specifically about marrying unsaved partners. Point number one, okay? But we're like halfway done. God says this is an abomination. It's called, you look at the words in that 11th verse, it's called an abomination. It's called a profane act. Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. And the prophet shows this to be detestable on two accounts. A, because of who the people were committing the sin. In no uncertain terms, we're made aware that Judah has been faithless. Abomination has been committed in Israel. And that emphasis isn't accidental. God's not talking about all the surrounding nations. He's talking about his people. They were distinct. They were separate. They were called by God. And this calling from God, this distinct identity, was to separate them from all other nations in terms of their seriousness in following the Lord. Everything they did was to be seen as touched by their creator. They were God's people like we are God's people. So that's one reason it was detestable. Secondly, it was detestable because of what God had already done for these people. There's a reason for the wording. Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. And notice 
specifically that reference to the city of Jerusalem because these people had not all that long ago been brought back by God's grace from Babylonian captivity to Jerusalem. They knew that they had been brought back by God's grace. God had again been nothing but kind to his stubborn, rebellious, idolatrous people. They didn't deserve it. No other nation on earth had been so treated by God. In other words, God had once again proven his faithfulness to his people. He hadn't deserted them. And what had his kindness and goodness done to their hearts? Had it won their gratitude? Had it made them more yielded to his rule? No. No. They were, if anything, more sinful, more cold-hearted in the face of God's kindness to them. God's kindness made them careless. Put a red in your brain. Put a red tick mark by that sentence. We're going to use it in a minute. God's kindness had made them careless. Point number two. In marrying pagan wives, they were breaking faith with God. And the text says they were profaning his sanctuary. 2.11. Judah has been faithless. God was faithful. They were faithless. Abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For... Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Maybe I don't think it should need to be said, but let me just say it just in case somebody's missing it. I want to make clear that the sin God was speaking of in these verses had nothing to do with people of another race. The Bible is very clear that all sorts of foreigners went with the children of Israel when they left Egypt. They could marry any whom they chose as long as they committed themselves to serving the true God of Israel. So the sin being dealt with here is a religious sin, not a racial sin. The people of Judah were marrying those who had no true faith in the true God. They were marrying people who, in fact, worshipped false gods. Point number three. Jump across the years. New Testament church. Jump across the years and see how the New Testament picks up this same theme. It does, and it does so from both a before and after perspective on marriage. So here's the before text. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? That's, that's, that's what you think about before you marry an unbeliever. Then there's the after perspective. That's in 1 Corinthians 7.39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only, only in the Lord. Why does the Bible put such an emphasis on that point? I'll tell you why I think it does. 
Because nothing shows the state of your heart more than your choice of a marriage partner. Nothing. Because marriage is the fountain of everything else that will come to be your life. You, you can't separate it from any other goals or aspirations. Notice, notice the scope of Paul's question in that first text in 2 Corinthians 6. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Dear one, listen, I'll tell you what, nothing. That's what's in common. Nothing. Oh, Pastor Don, I know we have some different views on spiritual things, but boy, that's the only difference. And in, the, and in that statement, you've just proven to me that you have no understanding of what the Christian life is all about. You're proving to me that you think the lordship of Jesus is belonging to some religious compartment of your life while the rest of your life is your own. You've moved Christ from the center to the edge of your decision-making process. That's why I said, nothing shows the state of your heart more than your choice of a marriage partner. If you're willing to marry an unbeliever, you're proving you have no real grasp or taste for the Christian life in the first place. And by the way, if you're willing to date an unbeliever, you are willing to marry an unbeliever. You just haven't discovered it yet. But Pastor Don, we have so many other things in common. I just really like his sense of humor. Really, does it glorify Jesus? No, but it's clean. Yeah, but you're not interested in just being clean. The passion of your heart is to glorify Jesus Christ, and your unsafe friend can't even relate to that. Well, he or she has a good job and is a hard worker. We'll make a lot of money. Maybe. But none of those things is the goal of your life if you're following Jesus. You're not here just trying to save lots of money. You're trying to glorify God and advance the kingdom of God and reach the lost. Yeah, but he's just so much fun to be with. He may be. Pursuing fun is really all he has to live for. But you're not here just to have fun. You're here to obey and please Jesus, to lay down your life for him at all costs. If you can't see those distinctions, you, you don't understand what following Christ is all. Not only do you not understand what marriage is, you don't understand what the Christian life is. For how are we doing? We're okay. The cost of linking your heart with an unbeliever. Malachi 2.12, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And I'm struck by those last words, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. It's a telling phrase. These people want to pursue their own inclinations in choosing a marriage partner, and then they want to continue to come and bring their sacrifices to the Lord in his house. So, so in other words, in other words, they want to make their own decisions about marriage and then assume and expect to continue their relationship with God in worship and sacrifice as though nothing was out of place. The words are stern for a good reason. Here's a principle I want to talk about just for a second. God wants these people to know, and us, that their feelings of innocence don't make them innocent. 
That's a really important principle. Because our culture increasingly, if you haven't noticed, our culture increasingly feels that as long as we are out front and honest with our sin, then it can't be that sinful. We call it, we call, for example, we call it coming out. There's nothing to be ashamed of here. Get it? It's, it's, called, it's called a pride parade. No one's calling it an embarrassment parade. The idea is that if, if we feel innocent about something, if we aren't offended by it, then God can't be either. And that's these people. They're disobeying the Lord flat out. I'll show you that they didn't do it in ignorance. I want to show you that now. That's in Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 4. Here's the instructions years, years before. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gigashites, the Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than yourselves, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote yourself, devote them to complete destruction. You should make no covenant with them, show no mercy on them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. This is a long text, kind of a convoluted quote. But the reason it's important is this. In our study of Malachi, these people weren't doing this in ignorance, not knowing they weren't supposed to do it. They knew all along what they were doing was wrong. They were planning on rebelling against the knowledge they had and then coming and offering their sacrifices and offerings and keep going with things. They just get God's forgiveness. Thank you very much. Remember I talked about the two sides? So they're sinning against clear knowledge, presuming on God's grace, and God tells them that they can come into his house and beg for forgiveness till the cows come home, and it's not going to work. Grace leads to holiness. Do you have a little red tick mark in your mind? Grace never leads to carelessness. And that's what they didn't understand. Five. This is the last point. Pastor Don, what if I've already committed this sin? Very quickly, 1 Corinthians 7, 12 to 16. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of the wife. The unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. We'll look at this text next week, by the way. Don't panic. I'm not doing the whole thing now. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? And husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? Here's the abiding principle. God's grace 
remember this. God's grace is activated by repentance in the same way his wrath is activated by presumption. God's grace in any situation, God's grace is activated by repentance in the same way that his wrath is activated by presumption. I'm just going to go ahead and do whatever I want. And I don't care. I'll get God's grace later on. No, you won't. No, you won't. You can bawl your eyes out. You won't. God's grace is activated by repentance in any situation. That's quite a truckload of stuff that we looked at tonight. Now, that way, if you're ever out and someone says, you know, you guys are so big on homosexuality, church never says anything about marriage and divorce, you'll be able to say, you know what, we did. He blew it, but I mean, he tried, he did his best. 